Yeah.
Well, amen. I feel like preaching after that. Forgot to turn my microphone on. Got me so excited. (laughs) Open your Bibles one more time, please, this morning to Revelation chapter 3. And we're going to finish up this part one of the study of the book of Revelation. And this will end out uh, this part of the study and also this part for this year. And God willing, we'll do part two in 2015 and get to the part a lot of people are waiting on as we get to chapter four and beyond. We've been taking some time and looking at the seven churches and the messages uh, that Jesus sent to these seven churches. And if you'll find your spot there this morning, please, in Revelation chapter three, and we'll begin reading there in a moment at uh at a portion there looking uh, at the, this particular church, beginning at verse 14 and then through uh, verse 22. Revelation chapter 3. We're talking today, as you see, about the self-sufficient church. And the moment that a church becomes self-sufficient instead of Jesus-sufficient, it is in serious trouble. The moment that an individual Christian becomes self-sufficient instead of Jesus-sufficient, he or she is in serious trouble. How quickly we forget the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, where he says in the Gospel of John, the 15th chapter, in verse 5, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But the last part of that verse says what? For without me, you can do what? You can do nothing. You can do nothing. So it's important for us to remember that there's no room for pride. There's no room for self-sufficiency. We are not self-sufficient. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. We need Him every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour, every moment, every second. There's not any time, anywhere, any place where we do not need the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the self-sufficient one. And we must beware of the sin of this supposed self-sufficiency both in our personal lives and in our church life. And we see this lesson clearly laid out for us here as we turn to the last of the seven messages, to the last of the seven churches here in Revelation chapter 3. And today we find ourselves in Laodicea. And Laodicea is probably one of the more well-known churches. And people talk about the Laodicean church and about being a Laodicean type believer, maybe. And we understand that's not necessarily a good thing when you think about the church in Laodicea. Now, we look here and you can see on the map there kind of where these seven churches were. And we start there in Ephesus and worked our way up and then back down. And now we find ourselves in Laodicea. You were to look on your Bible map, it would look something like that. And I want you to point out something. I want to point out something very quickly here. Notice Laodicea is right there. I want you to notice a place called Hierapolis above it and Colossae below it. That's going to be important in our study today. I want you to take note that you have Laodicea and then you have right there above it is a place called Hierapolis and below it a place called Colossae. So put that in your mind to think about it. That's what it looked, back, look, looked like in Bible times. Here's what Google says it looks like today. It's about three miles north of modern Denizli. I hope I'm saying that right. You ever been there? 
We have world travelers here at Red Hill. You know, people travel all over the world. It's amazing to me. Uh, people go on trips and go to different, different countries. I'm like, wow, we're, we're cultured people here in Red Hill. But there's a modern map of where it is in modern-day Turkey. I'll show you some pictures here if I can. Uh, here's the remains of the Laodicea Bridge crossing the Lycus River. If you look back there, you can kind of see the remains of where that bridge was. And... Uh, uh, interesting looking place. Here's a graveyard with bathhouse remains. Now, that's always encouraging to see a picture of a graveyard, isn't it? Uh, but there's a picture from Laodicea. I like this one. This is the Laodicean Roman theater remains. I'm amazed when I look back at how advanced they were and how things look and how it looks a lot like what we might do today if we were building a theater. But there it is. And then there is part of the wall from Laodicea still standing. And so we find it was a very interesting place. And we find the Lord Jesus Christ had some words for them, and they were strong words. In a moment, I'm going to have you stand, and we'll all read the passage together. But as we go through it, I want you to notice as we read it, beloved, that the Lord Jesus Christ does not mince words in what he's about to say uh, to these believers there in uh, Laodicea. He's very strong in his message, and I want you to notice that. And so we all can be on the same page, and we'll all read it together. Would you stand with me this morning, and we'll read this passage together. And choir members, I hope you brought your reading glasses. I can see that. Can you all see that? I want to see some eye doctor appointments this week. I can just tell right now, because that's nice and big. You can see that. Uh, You mumble along if you can't see it, right? Unless you're reading the New King James, we'll all be together. Let's read this passage together, then we'll pray and I'll have your seat. We'll jump into this passage together. Ready? We'll read Revelation 3, 14-22. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now, Father, bless your word to our hearts. Speak to us, I pray. May we respond in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thank you for uh, standing and reading with me today. Now, to get our bearings, we need to enter into the mindset of the church at Laodicea. And I think it would be helpful me to tell you a little bit about the place, about the city, uh, about where this church was located. Laodicea was an affluent, successful city. 
It was a city of banking and finance, of clothing production and manufacturing, and of medicine. I guess we could say it was characterized by finance, fashion, and fitness, I suppose. Ray Steadman said as a, as a center of wealth and commerce and medicine, Laodicea was kind of like a, a first century Bank of America, Macy's, and the Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. Now, I want you to get that mindset uh, there today. Think about this church is sitting in a city, and the city was the equivalent of the Bank of America, Macy's, and the Mayo Clinic. As I studied about this, I could not help but think of South Park Mall. <laughs> you know, I've talked to you about South Park Mall before. And imagine putting a church in South Park Mall. In other words, we go in there and we rent a space, and we say, we're going to have Red Hill Baptist Church, South Park Mall campus. That's kind of like Church of City. They found themselves in a very rich, a very affluent place. Now, when you understand the setting and the city where they lived, I think you'll begin to see how they got where they were as a church. Now, this passage is rich, and there's so much we could unpack when it comes to the church of Laodicea. But I narrow down all of this to two main thoughts. And so I hope this will help us all to understand what Jesus Uh, said what Jesus meant and what we can take away from this particular two main truths. Number one, Jesus knows our true condition. Jesus knows our true condition. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus addresses the church there in Laodicea in verse 14. He says unto the angel, that is the messenger, I believe the pastor of the church of the Laodiceans write. These things says the, um, the amen or amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. He says there, I'm the amen. Uh, Amen means so be it. It means it's true. It's an affirmation. It means that he is the affirmation of God. And so what he says is going to, to be. He's the faithful and true one. That is, he cannot lie. He cannot tell a lie. He is totally truthful. And it says there is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, I want you to understand something. That does not mean he's the first thing created. It means he's the one who did the creating. He's the beginning of the creation. That is, he's the one. He's the agent. He's the person who created. We know that's the case in John 1, 3. The Bible says about Jesus, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says very clearly, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created. First of all, it says what? Through him and all things were created for him. And I emphasize that it's so important you understand this is not saying that Jesus was the first thing created. There are cults and those who teach that and that denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't have a savior if he's the first created being. He's not created. He's God. He always has been. He always will be. He did not begin when he was born in Bethlehem. Jesus has always been. He's God. He's eternal. In Bethlehem, he began as perfect God, perfect man joined in the flesh. The deity and and the incarnation, deity and humanity joined together. So what he's saying about himself is, listen, what I'm about to say to you, Laodiceans, is the absolute, total truth. Amen. I am the amen. I'm true. I'm faithful. I'm the beginning of the creation. Now, imagine you're sitting there. Let's transport ourselves with our imaginations today and imagine that we're sitting there with the believers in Laodicea 
And we've heard our pastor take this scroll and he's been reading from the beginning of Revelation. We've heard him talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've heard the letters to the other six churches. And now it's our turn. The Lord Jesus Christ is about to speak to our church and about to speak to us. Now, can't you just see them? Remember, they're in an affluent city, the Bank of America and Mayo Clinic and Macy's of their day. Probably, possibly well-dressed and well-cultured even, maybe. They were, they were well-off, perhaps. And he gets to your part of the scroll. And all of a sudden, your balloon, it busts. Jesus does not have one word of commendation, one thing to commend about you and your church. Not one. And even worse, Jesus tells you that your church makes him sick. Now think about that. Look at the text with me. He says in verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He says to the church at Laodicea, he says to them, you make me want to puke. That's an encouraging word, isn't it? You make me want to vomit. You want me to, I want to throw up. He says, you're not cold and you're not hot. You're just lukewarm. He even said that he wishes that they were either hot or even cold rather than being lukewarm. Perhaps you heard about the little girl who, when she was picked up after Sunday school, her mother asked her to recite the verse that she had learned in Sunday school. Now, the verse she was supposed to learn was this one. Many are called, but a few are chosen. However, when she recited to her mother, it came out this way. Many are cold and a few are frozen. (laughs) That's true in church, isn't it? I won't ask how you feel temperature wise this morning, but that's true. There are those who are cold and frozen. But why would Jesus want cold or hot, but not lukewarm? We can understand why I want them hot, but why cold? Why is cold being better than lukewarm? You know, many over the years have waxed eloquent when they come to this passage. I've probably done the same thing. Waxed eloquent preaching and teaching about the fact that Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to be red hot on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And by the way, we should be red hot and on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then they'll go on to say, listen, it's better to be cold than lukewarm because at least it's easier to reach you if you're cold than lukewarm. Because if you're lukewarm, you don't realize you're lukewarm. Amen. That's right. We ought to be either cold or hot, but not lukewarm. Because lukewarm people are hard to reach. They think they're fine the way they are. And by the way, there's certainly some truth to that, what I just said. But after I studied this out in depth, I'd like to submit to you that those interpretations miss the mark. When it comes to this particular passage of Scripture, we ought to be on fire for the Lord Jesus. Yes. But what I'm saying to you in this passage, what people often think is this hot is good. Cold is bad and lukewarm is the worst of all. That's the way most people look at this passage. I'd like to submit to you this morning and explain to you that what I think it actually is saying is this cold is good. Hot is good. And lukewarm is bad. Now, before you throw a hymn book at me, let me explain to you what I mean. You say, listen, I can understand 
how hot could be good. But preacher, how in the world could cold be good? Well, you have to understand the setting. You have to understand understand the church. You have to understand Jesus's words. Paige Patterson, who's the president of Southwestern Seminary, our seminary out in Texas, helped me so much on this. And I want to share with you what I learned. Think about Laodicea for a moment. Now, I showed you this map a moment ago, and I asked you to notice Hierapolis and Colossae. Remember that? You have to the south the city of Colossae. You have to the northwest, about five miles away, was the city of Hierapolis. Now, Colossae had a perpetual supply of water. It was not only adequate water, it was ideal water. And by the way, I appreciate water, don't you? If you live in this community, you really appreciate it, because last night, it was gone. I thought, what am I, I'm going to be so ugly tomorrow, I can't shave and wash my hair, what am I going to do? But thankfully it was on, and I did the best I could, still ugly. But anyway, here we are, and you have Colossae, and you had a perpetual, adequate, ideal supply of water. The water flowed in a torrent out of the mountains into the spring, and it was cold water with an excellent taste. And it was just good water. Now in Hierapolis, you had a different type of water. Uh, the purpose of it was quite different. It was a resort area with hot springs and had a heavy mineral content to it. Uh, And it was the ideal place for you to go and to soak away your aches and pains in those hot mineral baths. Man, I want to go now. Yeah, bought my Christmas gift. Hey, there's a good idea right there. But anyway, it was a resort area and they would go and soak away their pain. Now, by comparison to Colossae with good tasting water to drink. And Hierapolis, with that water that was mineral laden and hot and felt good for the aches and pains, Laodicea was a contrast. In fact, while it was wonderfully blessed with prestige and privilege and wealth, it was the Bank of America and the Macy's and the Mayo Clinic, the water supply was a real problem. In fact, they found remains of the ancient aqueduct that brought water into the city. There are some pieces from those aqueduct, uh, that aqueduct itself. And you can kind of see it very large. And here is a remain of uh, the actual aqueduct south of uh, Tel there. And so you can see they would pipe the water into Laodicea. And in that pipe and in that aqueduct lay the hidden meaning for many generations of what I believe the Lord Jesus is saying to them. When you examine those pipes... And you look at the water that flowed through them, you discover that large mineral deposits have taken place and accumulated in those pipes over the years. In fact, I've got a picture. I want you to see the pipe and notice the large mineral deposit that's in it. You can see there the pipe is laden. It's filled with the calcium that has built up. And so what happened was the water arriving into Laodicea was mineral laden. I mean, look how much calcium is built up in that pipe. It was mineral laden and hence nauseating. It was not very tasty. And on top of that, there's a strong possibility that the transfer of water from the sources of that area, uh, which were universally warm springs, so warm springs coming in, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was no longer hot and, and, and so forth. It was lukewarm. It was tepid. And it was filled with minerals. In other words, instead of like Hierapolis, where you had these hot mineral baths, the water in Laodicea was lukewarm and mineral laden. How'd you like a big old glass of lukewarm, mineral laden water? 
So Paige Patterson consequently laid a seed became reasonably well known for its tepid and revolting water, which almost everyone found repulsive. And so when you begin to think about the water and you begin to think about what the Lord Jesus is saying, it begins to make perfect sense about what he's saying there about how cold water would be good and hot water would be good. They both serve a very useful purpose. But lukewarm water is nauseating and wants you to vomit. In fact, look at what Paige said. The Lord of the lampstand says to the church at Laodicea that like your own water supply, you are lukewarm and disgusting to my taste. I wish you were either a fresh, life-giving drink of cold water or else a healing, hot, mineral bath. But because you're neither refreshing in the life-giving nor healing, you're simply disgusting and I will spew you out of my mouth. You understand now? It begins to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? We said, I could wish you were cold or I could wish you were hot, but you're lukewarm. You're not serving the purpose you ought to serve. And we can understand the Lord's feelings, can't we? The very, and I have permission to share this story, so don't you look at me crossways. The very day I was preparing this message, I mean, I'm in the midst of studying that right there. My wife calls me to lunch. Now, I have permission to tell this story, don't I? That day we had soup and a sandwich, tomato soup, bologna sandwich. We were eating high on the hog that day. <laughs> They serve that at Downton Abbey, by the way, the soup and, and tomato sauce. Anyway, here we are. And we laughed because when I took a bite of the soup, it was lukewarm. <laughs> and she said, oh, I need to heat it further. And so we had lunch. You heated it further. I said, thank you for lunch and thank you for the sermon illustration. <laughs> we want our soup. It needs to be cold in the fridge or it needs to be hot on the bowl, but not in between. I have a confession to make as well. I was North, I'm North Carolina raised. North Carolina born and bred, and when I die, I guess I'll be North Carolina dead. But anyway, I grew up in North Carolina, and I grew up in the land, as you know, because we're here. And I know we have some transplants. I grew up in the land of cold, sweet tea. And my philosophy in life was, why have warm tea or hot tea if you've got ice? But then I married a girl from Pennsylvania. And she introduced me to hot tea. Tea. It took a while. You know, how I really got on the hot tea. I'll confess something else. I used to eat, used to go to lunch when I worked at BBN at the Chinese restaurant and they would give you free hot tea. And I'm cheap. And I said, I'll have hot tea. And so I got on the hot tea. <laughs> but anyway, it helped the Mary Pennsylvania girl. But I like my tea hot or cold in between. Not so great. I want it hot or cold. Jesus wants his church hot or cold. In other words, useful, fulfilling a purpose, his glory, his honor, like a cold, refreshing drink of water or a hot, soothing mineral bath, but not in between. He says, listen, I want you to be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. Now, we can see how they got in this condition when we read the next verse. We're going to read verse 17 is as we read verse 17, I want you to notice and look for two phrases. The first phrase is the phrase you say. And the second phrase is you are. Okay, look for those phrases. Verse 17, because you say I am rich, have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. Now, think about this for a moment, beloved. First of all, there's you say 
This is what the Laodiceans thought about themselves. This is what they said about themselves. This is how they describe themselves. Jesus says, you say, first of all, that you're rich. You're rich. And not only are you rich, you're wealthy. Remember, they lived in the modern equivalent of the Bank of America and Macy's and the Mayo Clinic all rolled into one. And so they lived in an affluent place, an affluent city. They said, listen, you're rich, you're wealthy. Jesus says, you're saying about yourself, you're rich, you're wealthy. In fact, they go a step further. They said they need nothing. Now, imagine a church saying we don't need anything. We need nothing. So when you look at what they said, what you say, what the Laodiceans said, it equals, beloved, self-sufficiency. In essence, they said, listen, we are self-sufficient. We're rich. We're wealthy. We don't need anything. We're self-sufficient. Do you see how bad things have become in this church? Now, the second phrase, by the way, now notice they're self-assured. They're self-deceived. They're self-deluded, self-satisfied, self-sufficient, or so they thought. But Jesus is not done speaking. Jesus says, you say that you're rich and wealthy, need nothing. But now notice what Jesus says there when he says, you are, in fact, first of all, you are wretched. You're wretched. Imagine Jesus saying to our church, listen, you're wretched. It carries the idea of inciting pity. You're to be pitied. In fact, he says about them next, you're miserable. That also carries the idea of being pitiable. You're to be pitied. You're wretched. You're miserable. And not only that, he says you're poor. That is, you're needy. You're in poverty. And not only that, you're you're blind. You can't even see. You're in such wretched, miserable condition. And finally, listen, Laodiceans, you're actually naked. You're unclothed. You see, Jesus knew their true condition. And do you see how he targeted their strengths? They were in a place that was the Bank of America, the Mayo Clinic, and Macy's all rolled into one. They were known for their special black wool that was made there and the clothing production and and for their, their medicine and for their advancements in medicine. And, of course, their banking and their finances. And there they are in their self-deluded, self-deceived, self-satisfying uh, uh, condition, self-sufficiency, saying, listen, we've got it all. We don't need anything. And Jesus says, you are wretched, you are poor, you're miserable, you're blind and you're naked. In other words, you're in pitiful shape. Now imagine, put yourself in their shoes and their sandals there. You've been listening to all these messages to all these churches. And Jesus comes to your church. You think, well, here he comes, hey. And he says, listen, you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Which brings us to a question we need to ask ourselves. And we need to ask as a church. And that is, are we self-sufficient or are we Savior-sufficient? Who are we looking to, beloved? Who are we depending upon? Who are we trusting? Is it our bank account? Is it our good name? Is it our job? Is it our reputation? Is it our history? Is it our tradition? Is it our strength? Beloved, the moment we become self-sufficient, we're in terrible shape. We're in great danger. You see, there's no place for self-sufficiency. Beloved, we need to be Savior-sufficient. 
That is depending and trusting and relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, can I ask you something? Ask yourself, do I trust Jesus? Or do I trust myself? Think about that for a moment. Do I trust Jesus or do I trust myself? Now, I said to you, first of all, this morning that Jesus knows our true condition. Now, secondly, I want you to notice with me this morning that uh, Jesus knows what we really need. Jesus knows what we really need. Let me go ahead and tell you what we really need, by the way, in case you have to slip out. This is not an invitation to slip out, but in case you have to slip out, what we really need is him. What we really need is Jesus. He has everything we need for life and for eternity. He looks at these physically affluent yet spiritually needy members. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me. (laughs) I've got what you need. Buy it from me. Come to me for these things. Gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. And white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eyes so that you may see. In other words, he wants to help them. He wants them to depend upon him. He wants them not to be self-sufficient, but Jesus-sufficient. Which brings up another question. As you study this, you might ask yourself, to whom is this written? Now, we know, yes, it was written to the church in Laodicea. And we understand that. But in other words, the question is this. And people wrestle with this. Uh, are these unbelievers or are they believers? I think both in a church, you have both. You have people that are saved and yet don't act like it. And you have other people that are acting like it, but they're not really saved. And so I think you have both. And I believe that they were believers in this bunch. Why? Because of what Jesus says in verse 19. He says there in verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. He loved them. Proverbs 3.12 says, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 12.5-7, and you have forgotten that the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening and the discipline of the Lord, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? Just as you, mom and dads, you discipline your children. Why? Because you love them. So our Heavenly Father disciplines us. And Jesus says to them, listen, I love you. Be zealous and repent. And repentance is a change of mind, which leads to a change of life. But then we come to that very famous verse, verse number 20. And verse number 20 is a verse that, you know, is used a lot when it comes to uh, people getting saved, calling lost people. Now, there are those who say, listen, verse 20, where it says, Jesus, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open the door, I'll come in and dine with him and so forth. They say, well, they can use that and apply it towards salvation, but that's not really what it means. Because it's actually written to a church. And Jesus is standing at the church knocking, trying to get in his own church. But as I studied that this past week, and I thought about that, Stephen Lawson made an excellent observation. He sees verse 19 where it says, be zealous and repent, as addressed to lukewarm Christians, backslidden Christians, Christians that need to get right in their fellowship with the Lord. In other words, Jesus is saying to those who know him already, but are lukewarm, And not where they need to be. Say, listen, you need to be zealous and repent. 
Change your mind, change direction, get right with me. And then he sees verse 20 is addressed to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more I thought about that, the more it makes sense. You know why? Because the picture of this idea of Jesus standing outside the church, his church knocking to get in doesn't make sense. Why? Because it says in chapter two, verse one, that Jesus is in the midst of the churches. He's in the midst of the churches. To me, it makes more sense than to understand not verse 19 toward believers that need to get right with the Lord and verse 20 toward those who do not know him, who need to come in saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And another reason it does is we want you to notice the change in the sense of things here. As you look at verse 20, it says there in verse number 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. But notice verse 20. This is addressed to unbelievers. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to what? To who? To him. Personal. And dine with him. And he with me. And so it makes perfect sense to me that that be addressed to an unbeliever. Because you must personally receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Nobody else can do that for you. Your mom and dad can't get saved for you. Your grandma and grandpa can't get saved for you. Your pastor can't get saved for you. You must open up the door to your heart, to your life, and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to come in. And I wonder, friend, have you done that? And did you notice the Lord Jesus is a gentleman? He doesn't force the door down. He doesn't knock it down. He lovingly knocks and waits for an invitation to come in. The Bible declares that if you will open the door, he will come in. And we know that he grants salvation and we know that he grants future reward. We're allowed to rule and reign with him. Look at verse 21. To him who overcomes, the overcomer is the believer. I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my fathers uh, on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. We get salvation and so much more. We invite the Lord Jesus Christ into our life. Now, in summary, beloved, we find in this passage that Jesus He knows our true condition. He knows where we really are. And Jesus knows what we really need. And what we really need is him. We need him for salvation, yes. But we need him every day of our life. We need his grace and his mercy. We need him working in our lives. We need to depend upon him and trust him. And so I ask each one of us again this morning and as a church, are we self-sufficient? Or are we savior sufficient? I'm told that a church building once caught on fire. By the way, can you imagine a more horrible sight than seeing a church building ablaze on fire? The entire neighborhood ran down the street to see the church on fire, the church burning. It was a hot fire, no chance of saving the buildings. And they're there looking at this church building burning. And a president among the bystanders that night watching the church burn was an atheist. He was the town atheist. He was known for his unbelief, his cynical attacks upon the church. And there he stands with everybody else watching the church burn. And as he's standing there watching the church ablaze, one of the members saw him standing there. And they very sarcastically said to this town atheist, what are you doing here? I never thought I'd see you at church. And the atheist replied, you'll have to excuse me. But I've never seen a church on fire before. Beloved, I wonder, what do people see when they look at our church? 
What do people think when they think about our church? When they think about us? But the better question is this. What does Jesus see when he looks at our church? Beloved, can I say to you this morning and be very loud and clear in this. Let us always be Savior sufficient. Jesus sufficient. For without him, we can do nothing. Father, it is with a grateful heart that we bow again in your holy presence. We thank you for this message to Laodicea. And we thank you for the message to us today. And Father, I pray if anybody here does not know you, that they'll turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ during this invitation time. And then, Lord, if anyone here is leaning upon themselves and their own self-sufficiency and their strength and their pride and their whatever, may they turn from that and turn to you this morning and say, listen, Lord, I need you. May we as a church family always walk dependent upon you. Always be Savior sufficient in all we do. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is 448. Just a closer walk with thee. If you need to be saved today, I'll be standing right down in front of the altar table there. I'd love to talk with you about Christ and lead you to Christ. But you know, today's message was mainly to us who know Christ. So maybe today the Lord's spoken to your heart. You'd like to come and pray today. Would you do that? We have ample room here for you to come and kneel and pray at this altar. As we stand and sing 448, just a closer walk with you. Let's stand and sing.